It is a very old custom in Reformed and Presbyterian churches that when a man is ordained to the pastorate, that there is a charge given to the newly ordained pastor and then a separate charge given to the congregation. This morning we're going to roll those two charges into one, and while certainly a lot of this uh, will be directed towards Cameron, I hope and trust that you all will benefit uh, from these words. I'm pulling from two of Paul's letters, letters that are known as the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. They're called pastoral epistles for the very obvious reason that they are written to pastors. Paul is addressing pastors of local congregations, and so they are perfectly suited for what we are doing here today. And I've picked out two passages that speak to different aspects of the pastor's calling, different aspects of the pastor, his life, and his character. We're going to look at having a holy ambition and doing a holy work, or you might say having a holy ambition for a holy work. Let's start with holy ambition, and much of this, again, will apply to uh, those who are called to pastoral ministry, but much of it will apply to all of us, I think, as you'll see. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, This is a trustworthy saying, if a man aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. Or to put it another way, if a man has ambition to become an overseer in the church, Paul says that is a good desire, that is a noble desire. Now, just having a desire to be an officer in the church, having a desire to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon is not enough to qualify a man for the office. And in fact, in the next several verses of this chapter, 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives an outline of the character traits and the qualities a man must possess in order to qualify for office. He says, this is what you must be if you desire to hold office in the church. So, there are further qualifications beyond simply the desire. Of course, a man also has to be called to the work by the church. You can't just appoint yourself to be a pastor. Others in the church have to confirm a man's call to the office. Now, in many cases, that includes a vote on the part of the congregation. And in the Old Testament and New Testament, we see people selecting those who will rule over them and represent them. So in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses says to Israel, choose wise and knowledgeable men to be heads over you. In Acts chapter 14, as Paul and his companions go about uh, planting churches in different cities, Luke tells us they elected elders in every church by a show of hands. There was a congregational vote, apparently by a show of hands, and that's how officers uh, were identified or confirmed in their office. Again and again, you see this. The people of the congregation are commissioned to recognize and elect qualified men to be their overseers. Now, in Cam's particular case, we did not have a congregational vote because he's being called as an assistant pastor at this point, which means his call comes from the session, not from the congregation. There's a little piece of Presbyterian polity for it. But it is our hope that eventually Cam will be called by you all as an associate pastor. Uh, so Cam's not a voting member of the session right now, though he is a minister of word and sacrament. We'd like to see Cam become an associate pastor at some point in the not-too-distant future, and that will require your affirmation, your recognition of Cam's qualifications for this office through a vote. And of course, I should also add here that 
presbytery is also involved in this process in terms of recognizing uh, a man and calling a man to office. Paul makes reference to presbytery's role in Timothy's ordination in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He describes presbytery laying hands on Timothy and even the gift that was given to him uh, when he had hands laid upon him. In Presbyterian church government, in the scriptures, the presbytery is that body of pastors and elders who oversee a collection of churches. Generally, that's what a presbytery is. And one of the tasks of presbytery is to test and examine candidates for ministry. You can do that at the local level, but it's helpful to have the wider stamp of approval from a wider collection of churches and their leaders. And I can assure you, Cam got a very thorough examination by our presbytery. He can tell you all about that. Uh, and he was approved by Presbytery. So for a man to become a pastor, he has to have an external call from the church. He has to be recognized as possessing the qualifications by the church, by the Presbytery. But he also must have an internal call, a desire for the task. And as Paul describes that desire, he uses uh, a word that describes aspiration or ambition. If a man desires this work, Paul says that is a noble ambition. That is a good desire to desire this good thing, this good work. Let's talk about ambition for just a moment. You know, uh, ambition gets a bad rap in the church today. And certainly that's in part because selfish ambition is a real problem. When someone wants a position because he craves glory and honor for himself, well, obviously we cannot approve of that. Selfish ambition basically makes the self into an idol. It seeks to draw glory to the self. So ambition certainly can be sinful. Paul forbids selfish ambition in various places, like in Philippians 2. He says, I don't want any of you to be characterized by selfish ambition. James forbids selfish ambition in his letter in James chapter 3. There is a kind of evil ambition. But there's also a kind of good ambition, a kind of holy ambition. It's so important for us to see this. Ambition can be holy and righteous and good. And in fact, I would say that if a man lacks all ambition, and I'm not just talking about here ambition for a church office, but just ambition in life in general, uh, if a man lacks all ambition, that's a real problem. A man who lacks all ambition is what Solomon calls a sloth or a sluggard in the book of Proverbs. That man who has no internal drive, no motivation, no desire, no ambition, no aspirations. That's slothfulness. That's being a sluggard. The problem, I think, is that so often today in the church, if someone express, expresses ambition for something, they immediately get shot down. If someone is ambitious to be a leader in their field or to win a competition or, say, to have office in the church, then so often that person will be accused of being power-hungry and egotistical and arrogant. They'll be accused of selfish ambition. There are some Christians who seem to think that the way to be godly is to empty yourself of all desire. Because if you really strongly desire anything, it means you're probably making an idol of it. I've seen this play out. Say so you have a, a young person who really desires to be married. They'll be accused of turning marriage into an idol. Or if you have a married couple who really desires kids, they have an ambition to raise a family together, well, they'll be accused of making children into an idol. 
Or if someone really wants to be excellent in their chosen field, say an excellent business person, an excellent manager, an excellent uh, doctor or lawyer, they'll be accused of making success into an idol. They'll be accused of selfish ambition. I would say this is actually dehumanizing. Uh, I've seen it referred to as Christian Buddhism because Buddhism is all about negating your own desires. That's what you're supposed to do in Buddhism is empty yourself of all ambition, all desire, all aspirations. Or perhaps you could refer to it as Christian Stoicism because the philosophy of Stoicism was all about suppressing your desires. But there's really nothing Christian about this. It's simply wrong. These kinds of ambitions or aspirations or desires that I have described, they are perfectly natural. They are legitimate. We need to understand there is such a thing as selfish ambition. There is such a thing as idolatrous ambition. But not all ambition is selfish or idolatrous. And indeed, we must have ambition for certain things or we've got another problem. There's a, there's a kind of sin involved in that. It's true, anything can be made into an idol, including marriage or children or church office, but it is not sinful to desire those things that God wants us to have. It's not sinful to desire those things that God has designed us for. Again, in fact, if somebody does not have any desire, any ambition, uh, any drive or aspirations in their life, that is a problem. I think one reason that so much Christian culture today is mediocre at best is because we have this tendency in the church to discourage aspiration, to uh, critique and criticize ambition, to even demonize success as it were. If you're too successful, obviously you've, you've created an idol in your life. If you're trying too hard, obviously you've made an idol out of something. No, there is such a thing as godly ambition, a godly drive and aspiration to do something and to do it well. A godly aspiration and drive and ambition to make something of yourself, to make yourself useful, to be effective in what it is you believe God has called you to do. And that is what Paul has in view in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Now, obviously, uh, not every man in the church uh, will or should aspire to some kind of office. But that drive, that desire to be a church officer, whether it's a pastor or, say, a ruling elder, Paul also deals with deacons later in this chapter, that can be a good thing. It can be a holy ambition. It can be a good thing to set your heart on this. And again, this is important. I've talked about how this is really important in our lives more broadly considered. But even in the church, this is really important. Even when it comes to church office, this is really important because there's a long-standing tradition in the church that says a man should not desire a church office, but should have it thrust upon him and should only very reluctantly and even unwillingly be pressed into it. And so you'll hear stories from church history of, uh, of a man having to be dragged to his ordination in chains. Supposedly, that's what happened with uh, Anselm, the great medieval theologian and philosopher. Supposedly, he had to be dragged to his ordination in chains. And some people thought that Anselm's reluctance was a sign of his piety. This is really just another version. It's a church-specific version of the view that all ambition is bad. It's a real problem. Paul here says it's a good thing, it's a noble desire to aspire to church office. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter tells elders in the church to undertake their work not under compulsion, but willingly. That is, 
eagerly. There's to be a desire to do the work. Now, in Cam's case, Cam has certainly demonstrated that he has a godly ambition to undertake this work. He's doing so willingly. He is driven. He's internally driven to it. And Paul would say that is good. That's not worldly ambition. That is a godly ambition. That's a good and noble desire. That is a holy aspiration. But there's something else to notice here. While it is obviously true that Paul is talking about aspiring to a church office, an office that could be referred to as overseer or elder or pastor. I'm not saying all those terms refer to exactly the same thing, but that's the kind of office here that's in view. It's clear that Paul is referring here to having aspiration for an office in the church. What the text actually describes aspiring to is a work. The way the New King James reads, it's if any man aspires to the position of overseer. But that, that it doesn't actually talk about a position in the Greek. It actually refers to the work of overseeing. If any man desires to do the work of overseeing, if any man, if any man desires to oversee, Paul says that is a good thing. See, there, there's this uh, desire. What is Paul talking about? There is this desire to take on the responsibilities and burdens that come with the office. That is the focus. It's not just about having the authority or the status or prestige that might be associated with the office. Specifically, what Paul is saying the man desires that is good is taking on a certain set of tasks, a certain set of responsibilities, taking on the yoke of Christ to represent Christ and to minister as Christ's ambassador within a Christian community. The truly faithful man, the truly charitable and humble man will not run from responsibilities. Rather, he will run towards responsibilities because he wants to serve and bless others. The office is a work. To aspire to the office is to aspire to the work. That's really what Paul is saying here. And specifically, it is what Paul calls here the work of overseeing. Pastors and elders together oversee the congregation. Paul says here, if any man aspires to oversight, he desires a noble task. It is a noble work. It requires a noble man to do it, and it is noble to be ambitious for it. And again, here you can see, because it is an ambition to take on certain responsibilities and to serve a community in a certain way, this ambition is not about self-glorification. It's about the glory of taking responsibility for others. It's about the glory of serving others. It's about being an overseer. That's the word that Paul uses here. Overseers. What do overseers do? Overseers oversee. They give oversight to the life of the congregation. We've got a good example of this in Acts chapter 20, as Paul is saying his final goodbye uh, to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He's departing from Ephesus, which incidentally is where Timothy was ministering. So he's writing this letter to the church, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. But there in Acts chapter 20, as Paul saying his goodbye, he tells the elders of the church there, take heed of yourselves and of the flock. So take heed, watch out for it yourselves and for the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So what does it mean to oversee? It means to shepherd. 
he would oversee the congregation the way a shepherd would oversee his flock. And so the same role that a shepherd has in guarding his flock and caring for his flock, that's what it means to be an overseer. Overseeing is comprehensive shepherd. And so that includes things like developing and executing on the vision and mission for the local church. It includes what we might call pastoral counseling and church discipline. It includes leading worship. And perhaps the thing that Paul emphasizes more than anything else in the pastoral epistles, it includes preaching and teaching. The sheep have to be fed, and the way to do that is by the the pastor, the overseer, bringing them the word of God so they can feast on God's word. To be ambitious to do the work of of an overseer means especially to be ambitious for the work of preaching. That is especially what it means. It means other things too, but it especially means to have an ambition to preach and teach the word of God. I find it really interesting at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans as he's wrapping it up, uh, he lays out his travel plans, he's sort of giving them a travel itinerary, and in chapter 15, verse 20, Paul says this, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. He says, it is my ambition to preach the gospel. And in context, specifically, he wants to preach the gospel where it's never been preached before. He wants to go lay a foundation. He wants to go plant churches where churches have never been planted, where the gospel's never before been preached. He says, that is my ambition. But what's interesting for us here, what I think is really worth noting, is that Paul ties together ambition with preaching. He has an ambition to preach. And I think he's really got the same thing in view in the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy show that any pastor is to have an ambition to preach and is to be ambitious for the preaching and teaching ministry he will carry on in his congregation. And I think you especially see that if you turn over to second Timothy, the passage we read there, second Timothy chapter four, Paul summarizes what this means for Timothy and by implication what it means for every pastor. 2 Timothy is likely Paul's last letter. And Paul knows he is nearing death. And so these are among his last words. And you can sense their urgency. It's almost as if Paul was on his deathbed. These would be among the last things that he would say. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and instruction. Now you can tell this is no ordinary man for Paul. This is no ordinary charge. And you can tell that by how Paul builds up to it. He invokes God's presence. He speaks of Christ's final coming and the final judgment and the consummation of the kingdom. He says, I charge you, buy all of these things. Paul is building up the hype. He's intensifying the command he's about to give. He's saying this is really, really important. He's ratcheting up the force of what he's about to say. So in light of God's presence, in light of Christ's final coming and the day of judgment, what should Timothy do? Preach. What should Timothy do in light of these amazing realities? Timothy should preach. He should preach the word. And in fact, Paul tells him to preach the word in season and out of season. What's that mean to preach the word in season and out of season? Well, 
in season and out of season has to do with the circumstances, internal and external, to the one called to preach. Internally to preach, in season and out of season, means to preach when you feel like it and when you don't. It means this is his duty, whether he feels like taking it up or not, whether it is convenient or not. Indeed, Paul says he is to be ready at all times to preach because you never know when an opportunity might arise. Even when Timothy feels discouraged or exhausted, the duty of preaching calls. He's to be ready in season and out of season. But he also has the responsibility to preach no matter his outward circumstances, his external circumstances, his surrounding circumstances. That is to say, whether the message seems timely or not, whether it will be popular or not, whether it will be received well or not, whether, uh, whether it's going to get him into trouble or not, Timothy is to preach. The message does not change to suit the times. He's not to trim the sails to fit with the prevailing wins. He's to preach the faith once and for all delivered He's not to chase trends or fads that might make him more popular. He's to preach even if it will bring persecution and opposition. That's what it means to preach in season and out of season. Preach when people are going to congratulate you for for preaching and preach when they're going to seek to crucify you for preaching. Preaching is a battleground. Preaching is an act of war. Any man who steps into the pulpit is acting as a soldier fighting for God's kingdom. Preaching is warfare. Uh, the great uh, Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, the pulpit is our Thermopylae, for there the battle shall be won or lost. And if you want to know why Spurgeon compared preaching to Thermopylae, we've got lots of classically educated kids here who can explain that reference to you. Don't know why that reference was made. Preaching is warfare. It is God's word versus the culture's word. It is a clash of words, a clash of definitions. You know, the world wants to use words in its own way. It wants to give its own definitions to words. It wants to give its own definition to words like justice and love and marriage, and even words like man and woman. In these crazy times we live in. But through preaching, the church fights back with truth. We describe and define these things according to God's definition, God's reality, the only reality there is. Fundamentally, of course, preaching means preaching the truth of the gospel. It means preaching Christ, Christ's death for sinners, taking wrath as our substitute, his triumphant resurrection on the third day, and now his present reign over all things, how he promises to save his people from their sins and from the wrath they deserve. Timothy is to be a preacher of the gospel. That's what it means to preach the word. He's to preach God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's promise of renewal in Christ Jesus. But Timothy is not to preach some narrow message of salvation that only applies to a narrow slice of life, as if the preacher is handing out get out of jail free cards, get out of hell free cards. No, that's not the case at all. Timothy is to preach the word. He is to preach the whole counsel of God. He's to preach this book, the Bible, in its fullness. And in fact, you go back into 2 Timothy chapter 3, just a few verses earlier, Paul has said that Scripture is God-breathed, 
Scripture is inspired by God. Every word of it, every jot and tittle of it is inspired by God. And he says there that the word equips the man of God for every good work. Which is to say the word applies to all of life and all of culture. The Bible applies to your private life and your family life, but it also applies to your public and political life. If Timothy's going to preach the word, he's going to press the word out into the corners of life. He's going to apply the word to every aspect of life, everything under the sun. Because the Bible has comprehensive authority, it is our authority in every area of life. Paul says the word of God equips the man of God for every good work. This is his equipment. And Paul says now use it. And the way you use this piece of equipment is by preaching it. Timothy has been equipped for battle and he's to fight that battle by proclaiming the word. This two-edged sword, this living and active word of God. But note, the preacher is to preach God's word, not his own. The preacher should seek to make his voice an echo of God's voice. He's to preach God's word, not his own word. He's to preach the good news that God has entrusted to him, the scripture that God has given to him. If the preacher is going to preach in season and out of season, he must be faithful to the word. And further, if he's going to preach in season and out of season, he must fear God and not man. Because preaching the word will get you into trouble. That's why Cameron took a vow this morning that no matter what persecution or opposition come on account of his preaching, he will stay true to his calling, to his mission, to the word. The man who would preach must not be a coward. He must be courageous. So often with preachers today, the problem is not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of information. It's a lack of a backbone. And that's why the word does not get preached and applied in its fullness. The Apostle Paul knew this would be a problem, and that's why many times he worried, he, he warns about being a people pleaser instead of a God pleaser. He warns about fearing man more than fearing God. The preacher does not preach for the praise of men. He preaches for the praise of God. It is God's approval that matters most. He preaches ultimately for a congregation of one, or we could say three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He preaches to please God. If your goal is to make everyone happy, if you're a pastor and your goal is to make everyone happy, as William Willimon once said, you will be awfully busy. <laughs> and I put the stress on awfully. If you think your goal is to keep everyone happy, you will be awfully busy. For sure. No, in preaching, your aim is to please your heavenly master alone. Jesus' accusation against the Pharisees is that they loved the glory that comes from other men more than they wanted the glory that comes from God. And so Jesus said, that's the only reward you'll get. The praise of men, the, the glory of men, that's the only reward you're going to get. Paul uses himself as an example of this. He says in Galatians 1, am I seeking the approval of men or of God? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's it. Those are your only two choices. The preacher cannot have two masters. The preacher has one master, Christ himself. And so the preacher must be resolved to herald God's truth, undiluted, without compromise. Far too many preachers in the church today seek to repackage God's word in a way that minimizes offense. Preachers preach small sermons because they fear man rather than God. They cut off the hard edges. They shave down the hard and sharp edges of God's word because they don't want to cause offense. They don't want to get in trouble. 
But that's failure to do what the preacher has been called to do. The preacher must be bold. But in being bold, the preacher must beware of pride. The preacher must declare God's word with confidence, but he must declare God's word with humility. And the temptation for pride amongst preachers is always there. One time after John Bunyan, you know John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, one time after John Bunyan had preached a sermon, a friend to him came up to him after the sermon and said, John, you preached well. And Bunyan said back, you are too late. The devil already told me that before I even left the pulpit." Satan would love nothing more than puffed up proud preachers. Preachers who love to hear the sound of their own voice. The preacher must guard against vanity. Further, the preacher must be a, a student, a lifelong disciple of God's word. The preacher must study diligently so he has something worthwhile to teach, so he has something worthwhile to say. The preacher must study diligently so he can proclaim God's word faithfully and accurately. And to be honest, and I can say this as a pastor, there are far too many pastors out there who are lazy. Frankly, there are a lot of lazy pastors out there. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul says, study, be diligent in your studies so you can show yourself to be approved by how you handle the word. Study the word, study hard, be diligent in your studies so you can handle the word skillfully. Sermons don't write themselves any more than sermons preach themselves. The reality is good preaching is hard work. To master the Bible, be mastered by it, does not come easily. To communicate God's truth faithfully is always a challenge. But I can tell you this, I'll tell you this, Cam, as one pastor, one preacher to another, the hardest person to preach to is always yourself. And no preacher should preach a message to his congregation. He has not first preached to himself. But having applied the word to himself, the preacher is made ready to apply it to his congregation. Preaching is a labor, but it is a labor of love. Satan works to make the preacher's task even harder. And I think Satan's doing a pretty good job of it in our day, in our age. Satan's got a whole bevy of ways that he can keep people from really hearing the word, not just by getting the pastor to compromise, to be lazy, to be cowardly, but also by how Satan can get to the hearer. Satan has an array of distractions he can use to keep the word from having its effect. I think it's hard to find satanic influence in our age. We live in an age that prefers distraction over focus that prefers the visual over the audible. We live in an age in which people have increasingly short attention spans rather than normal human attention spans. Satan's always trying to interfere with the seed of the word, to keep the seed of the word from being planted on good ground. There's always pressure being put on the preacher, again, to compromise his message. And you know what? There are preachers on the internet who will tell anyone and everyone exactly what they want to hear. And so if you want to hear a preacher who will tell you that the Bible says that fornication is okay or homosexuality is okay or whatever message you want, you can find it. You can find that kind of preaching. But that kind of preaching is false. The faithful preacher is not going to tell people what they want to hear. He's going to tell his people what they need to hear and in the way they need to hear. 
And again, this means any faithful preacher will find himself involved in controversy from time to time. That's how R.C. Sproul described it. Sproul says, Jesus' life was a storm of controversy. The apostles, like the prophets before them, could hardly go a day without controversy. To avoid controversy is to avoid Christ. We can have peace, but it is a servile and carnal peace where truth is slain in the streets. There are people who will cry out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Truth is being slain in the streets and they want to cry out. In 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul spells out the different forms preaching can take. He spells out the, the different tools in the pastor's toolbox, as it were. This can include convincing, rebuking, exhorting. All of these are different ways of patiently instructing. Basically, what Paul is telling Timothy, and really all preachers, is this. Say forcefully what needs to be said with force, and say gently what needs to be said with gentleness. Think of preaching as spiritual heart surgery. The preacher is a spiritual cardiologist, and he's operating on people's hearts as he preaches. And so the preacher must wield the scalpel of the word skillfully, suiting it to the needs of his patients, suiting it to what will serve the repentance and maturation of all those who hear his voice. Preachers are to use the word to drive off wolves, to keep the sheep safe. This is one way you can oversee the flock, is by driving off the wolves and the false teachers. This is something that the pastor as a shepherd is called to do. Being overly harsh with sheep is wrong, but so is being overly nice to wolves. Because when the shepherd is overly friendly towards the wolves, that puts the sheep in danger. And I will tell you today, we live in a world where many preachers will sacrifice the well-being of the sheep in order to appease the wolves, who are the enemies of his sheep. John Calvin said it well. He said the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. And so my charge to you, Cam, is the same as Paul's charge to Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out. May you be able to say with the Apostle Paul, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Like the Apostle Paul, may you gladly spend and be spent for the souls of others. My charge to you, Cam, is this. Speak God's truth and stand firm in that truth. Preach the gospel of God's grace and preach the whole counsel of God's word. And when you do this, you will make Jesus present to his people through your words. That's the promise of preaching, that Jesus makes himself present to his people through the words of the preacher when they're true to Scripture. That's your call. Charles Spurgeon said this to a group of ministerial students. Right at the beginning of training a, a group of young men who wanted to be pastors, Spurgeon said this, Do not enter the ministry if you can help it. Do not enter the ministry if you can help it. He continued, he said, if any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator, or we might add a software developer, in the name of heaven and earth, go your own way. If, on the other hand, you can say that for all the wealth of the earth, you could not and dare not take up any other calling so as to be put aside from the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that depend upon it 
You have the signs of this ministry. Now Spurgeon is not saying only go into the pastorate if you have no other skills, if you can't do anything else because you're not good at anything else. That's a surefire way to get a lot of really incompetent men in the pastorate. That's not what Spurgeon is saying. What Spurgeon is saying is we need men in the pastorate who could do all these other things because they are competent, skilled men. But they have got the fire in their bones. They have got an unquenchable desire, a deep ambition to preach. And they cannot be satisfied doing anything else with their lives. And so they will sacrifice everything if only they can preach the gospel. They are willing and ready to preach the word in season and out of season. That is the kind of man God wants as his spokesman, as his mouthpiece, as his ambassador. Cam, my charge to you is when you are such a man, continue to be that kind of man. My charge to you, Cam, is to preach the word. And my, my charge to you, the congregation of Trinity Presbyterian Church, your charge is this, is to hear that It's to believe that word. It's to obey that word. Yes, you have to test the word that is preached. You have to be good to read. You have to test what is preached against the scriptures. But my charge to you is to hear this word, receive this word, obey this word, believe this word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.